In the first century, there was a small town called Philippi in eastern Macedonia, which today is Greece. And in this little town was a church to whom Paul writes this letter of Philippians, which we've been studying for 19 weeks. And now this morning, we'll begin thinking through Paul's last chapter, chapter four. One thing we know about this church in Philippi is that there were godly women there. We're told in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul and Timothy and Silas had landed in Philippi to preach the gospel, they first preached to a group of women who were gathering water for their families. And as they preached, we're told that God opened the heart of a respected woman named Lydia. She believed the gospel and became the first Christian in Philippi. And on that foundation of one believing woman, Christ built a church. So many years later, Paul is writing this letter. There are other exceptionally godly women in the church, including two that he mentions today. But these two women are also in conflict with one another. And so Paul has some instructions for them and for their church. And the instruction boils down to these three words. Stand, agree, and help. The entire church needs to stand. Those in conflict need to agree. And those out of the conflict need to help. So that's where we're headed this morning. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, we need your help in understanding your word. We need your help in applying your word. We know that our Minds will be dark and our hearts will be cold without you. So send your Holy Spirit and give us light and heat, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter four. If you haven't already, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find that on page six hundred and thirty seven. Let me read the text in its entirety one more time before we begin. So this is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is the word of God. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Amen. So in verse one. In verse 1, Paul has us looking back at what he has already said, and he has us looking forward to what he is about to say. This is a transitional verse. The word therefore 
in verse 1 looks back and the word thus looks forward. So it reads like this. Therefore, because of what I have said before, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm. There's the first exhortation. Thus. In other words, stand firm in the way I'm going to show you. In the Lord, my beloved. Or we can make this even more clear by collapsing the verse. If we take out all the descriptive phrases about his readers, he uses a lot of them. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. That's all talking about the same people. If we remove all those but my brothers, verse 1 would read like this. Therefore, looking back, my brothers stand firm thus, looking forward. Okay, first, let's look at that word, therefore. Let's take that word, therefore, and let's look back together. He wants us to look back. Looking back at the end of chapter 3. We looked at these verses last week, verses 17 through 21. Here's what Paul has just done before our text today. He's warned us about bad examples who are professing Christians, but they actually walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and whose end is destruction. Therefore, stand firm. That's the connection. And before that, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3, Paul had warned of another group. He called them dogs. They were false teachers who put confidence in their own works and they encouraged others to do the same. Therefore, stand firm. That's the connection. And this exhortation to stand firm, it's not just for the Philippians. It's it's for you. It is for me. False teaching is still a problem. Bad examples are still a problem. Therefore, stand firm. But he also in this verse, he looks back. But he also looks forward. And he looks forward by using the word thus. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, In the verses that follow, actually, I think nearly to the end of his letter, Paul is going to give his readers examples of how they need to stand firm. So he's already made a case for why we need to stand firm. And now he's going to tell us different ways in which we need to stand firm. Stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way. So this is Paul's first instruction. Stand firm in the Lord. And this instruction is for the entire church. He's not just instructing a select few in the church to stand firm. He's not saying leaders stand firm. Committed members stand firm. He's saying to this entire church, stand firm. He says, my brothers In other words, fellow Christians, 
My brothers, stand firm. So the whole church should be united. The whole church should be facing the same direction. Standing firm. Stiko is the Greek word Paul uses. He uses the word seven times in his letters, including once before in this letter. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Here's another example. Paul used this word at the conclusion of his first letter to the Corinthians. There he said, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. It's a military term. This word he uses for stand is a military term. It'd be used by a commander to order his troops to hold their position on the battlefield. Stand firm. Don't retreat. Don't surrender. Don't turn away. Don't run. Don't hide. Be brave. Be strong. Hold your position. So for Paul... This is a picture of what the Christian must do. Christians then, Christians now are surrounded by unbelievers, of course. Christians then, Christians now are surrounded even by professing believers who might teach falsely, who might be walking as enemies of the cross. They are against God at the end of the day. They are against truth at the end of the day. And so we must hold our position. We must stand firm in the Lord. We must not compromise. We must not collapse under pressure. When it comes to our defense of the truth and Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, we have to nail our feet to the ground. Persevere is what Paul is saying. Never give up is what Paul is saying. Stand firm. That's his first instruction. And it is for the entire church. So that brings us to our next verse. Look at verse 2. If a church is going to stand firm, it it will need to be united. Remember, standing firm is not something Paul just wants for a select few in the church. It's something that the entire church does together. Jesus said in Mark 3.25, If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. A church divided can't stand. So we can't follow his first instruction to stand firm if there is division and apparently there is some division in this church. It's why Paul brings it up after calling them to stand firm. So what is it 
What's the division, as best we can tell? There's a conflict. There's a conflict between two women. And Paul brings it up in verse 2. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if you were these women and you were sitting in the pew as Epaphroditus read this letter to the church? That was the custom. These churches would receive these letters from an apostle and then they'd gather the church together, have a quick meeting. They'd call everybody in and then they would read Paul's letter. Paul knew that. That's why he would include names sometimes. He knew those people would be sitting there. Can you imagine how difficult it would be if you were Eodia or you were Syntyche and you were sitting in that pew? I don't think they had pews, by the way. Keep saying that. So what does Paul do? He admonishes them in love. He admonishes them in love. He speaks tenderly to them, doesn't he? Now, partly I'm sure he's speaking tenderly because they were women, but also because these were godly Christian women. These are godly Christian women. They were not who he had just been talking about. They were not professing Christians, but really enemies of the cross whose end is destruction. That's not who these women were. Their names, what does he say in verse 3? Their names are in the book of life. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that these two women are believers. They were among, what else does he say about them? They were among his fellow workers who formerly, what? Labored side by side. So they labored with one another and with Paul. And what else does he say? For the gospel. So these are two godly Christian women. And yet there's some sort of division between them. We don't know what the conflict was about, but apparently these two women were at the center of it. Ediodia and Syntyche. Perhaps they were arguing over who had the worst first name. So, so cheesy. Those, those are pretty rough names, though. Evidently, it was a big enough deal for Paul to bring it up publicly. Whatever was going on between these two gals, it was a big enough deal for him to bring up publicly. But notice, he doesn't bring up any particular sin. He doesn't give any specifics. These women aren't false teachers. They're not immoral. If they were, he he would have brought that up. They're two people in a church who, for whatever reason are not getting along. There is relational conflict between these two women. And listen, this is going to happen in your life. Conflict. Conflict is inevitable. It was inevitable in the first century church. It's inevitable in the 21st century church. Some of you, I think most people, try to avoid conflict. It's very difficult, isn't it? It is very difficult to avoid conflict. 
Unless you're just not going to interact with anybody, you're not going to talk to anybody, you're not going to have a relationship with anybody, you're going to seclude yourself, put yourself in a bubble. It is very difficult to avoid conflict. There will be conflict in your home, in your family, and yes, even in your church. There's going to be conflict. We shouldn't be scared of it. Here are some ways the dictionary describes conflict. To come into collision or disagreement, a prolonged struggle, a quarrel, a squabble, a fight, strife. And all of that happens in the local church. That happens in this church. People disagree. Toes get stepped on. Feelings get hurt. Arguments start. Churches argue about all kinds of things. We have endless lists of things to argue about. We argue over theology. We argue over ministry, philosophy, and Bible versions, and education, and money, and books, and carpet color, and worship music, and on and on. So stand Firm, Paul has said, and you can't stand firm in the Lord if you are in unresolved conflict with one another. You can't. Not together, not as a church. So what does Paul do? He brings up the conflict. In his letter. He doesn't sweep the conflict under the carpet. He doesn't assume the conflict will work itself out. He doesn't assume the conflict will take care of itself. He brings it up. Which in and of itself is difficult. Okay. So what does Paul tell these women to do? This is his second instruction. And it's not for the whole church. Stand firm. That's for the whole church. This instruction is for the two women. This instruction would be for any of you who are in conflict this morning. Or it's the person you're not looking at right now, but thinking about. I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. But you're thinking about them right now. There's conflict right now in this church. There are people in this church, in this room right now, and you're in conflict with one another. So we want to hear what Paul has to say. To these two women, what are they supposed to do with this conflict? Listen to verse 2 again. I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So those inside the conflict have a responsibility to agree in the Lord. Paul does not take sides. He doesn't take sides. If this was over theology or immorality, then sides might be taken. But here, you have two women, probably with two very different perspectives, and Paul doesn't take sides. This happens all the time. You ever had two people in conflict, and you hear one person's perspective, and you're pretty 
sure you know exactly what's going on, and then you go and hear the other person's perspective and you have no clue what's going on? There's usually, a Proverbs warns us of this, right? Hear both sides. It always seems right when you hear the first side, but you've got to get the other side. There's, there's probably two very different, compelling perspectives from each of these women. So what does Paul do? He does not entreat, which means urge. When he says, I entreat, I urge. Paul does not entreat one of them to agree with the other. That's not what he, he doesn't take sides. He doesn't say, I'm urging you to agree with her. Or I'm urging you to agree with her. Though obviously Paul knows what the perspectives are, the circumstances are. He's probably heard it a bunch. Word has come to him. That's why he's giving them an instruction about it. Rather, he urges both of them equally. He actually says it twice. Look again at verse 2. I entreat you, Eodia, and I entreat you, Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. So he gives both of them the same job. Two of you are in conflict. You both have the same job to do. He gives them the same job, and it is to what? To agree in the Lord. Neither of them should be passive. Neither of them should be passive. Neither of these women should be waiting for the other to say something to start the reconciliation or apologize first. And you've been in that position. You're in conflict with someone. And you're ready. You're ready to apologize. You're ready to bury the hatchet. You're ready to overlook. You're ready to talk about it. But they're not. But once they show me they are, I'm ready. And so I'm waiting. And it's passivity. They need to make the first move. They started this. So they need to start the reconciliation. I'm not the one who sinned. They're the one who sinned. I'm not wrong. They're wrong. I'm right. They're not right. I'm always the one who has to apologize. I'm always the one who has to initiate conflict resolution. Not this time. But I'm ready. I'm humble. I've got buckets of grace. I'm ready to pour out. Conditionally. So Paul entreats each of them to do something, to agree in the Lord. He says, Iodia, it's your job. I'm urging you to do this. Syntyche, it's your job. I'm urging you to do this. But she said, but she did. But you don't understand the background. Yeah, I've heard all that. I've heard the background. I know there's a lot to it. I, I, I know that you both have been wounded. I, I know that you both have hurt feelings. I know both of your toes have been stepped on. But listen, you both have a responsibility as Christians if you're in conflict with one another, you need to make the first move. You need to agree in the Lord. So what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean for these two women? What does it mean for us when we are in conflict, especially with other Christians? What does it mean to agree in the Lord? So this word for agree is phroneo, and it means to set 
one's mind on something. It means literally to set one's mind on something. Paul uses this term a lot in his letters. In fact, he uses it ten times in this letter to the Philippians. So let me give you a couple examples. You can look with me if you'd like. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 5. Paul uses this word for agree. In verse 2 of chapter 2, he said, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. uses it twice. Then in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 15 and 19, verse 15, let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. We tend to right? you know, this in conflict operate not on our thoughts and thinking, but on our feelings, which is never prescribed in the Bible. Feelings are reality, and of course, we need to deal with our feelings, but to be motivated and moved and controlled by your feelings and your emotions, many of you have learned this, is very dangerous. Rather, Paul's encouragement is you need to use your brains. You need to use your minds. You need to set your mind together on something. Verse 19 of chapter 3. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Here it's used negatively with minds set on earthly things. So Paul, he wants these women to set their minds on the same thing. That's what he's telling them to do. To set their minds on the same thing. So here's a question. Typically, when you are in conflict with someone, what is your mind set on? What is your mind set on when you, like these two women, are in conflict with someone? So let me share with you some of the things that that are on my mind. So I examine my own heart. Think about my own thoughts when when I am in conflict with someone, a, a friend, a, a son, a daughter, my wife. When I'm in conflict, here are the things that just they get in my mind. It's just my knee jerk. This is where I'm going. Winning. Winning. I want to win. And when I'm in conflict with someone, I want to win. Self-justification. I didn't do anything wrong here. What I did was right. And I'm going to make you understand that. I want to be right. Self-defense. So wherever in this conflict, I'm being criticized or... I potentially have done something wrong. I want to defend myself. And usually the way that looks is your perspective is wrong. 
I, I know my wife's laughing to herself right now because she's like, these are, the, this is it. These are, <laughs> this is right on. Like you did this this morning. <laughs> Self-defense. You're, you're pers- whoa, 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 whoa. How could you even assume that of me? How could you even think that I would think that? I'm so much holier than that and purer than that. How could you even think this? So now I'm pointing the finger back, right? Like, how could you? That's so sad that you would think that of your husband. You have such a low view of me. You just don't, right? It's silly stuff. So self-defense, payback. Payback is on my mind sometimes when I'm in conflict. That stung, so I want to sting. That hurt. Those words hurt. So maybe these words will hurt. I want to push it back. Or self-pity. Self-pity. Woe is me. Poor me. Here I am again in conflict with this person or that person. That's where my mind goes. Naturally. In conflict, my mind tends to be set on winning, self-justification, self-defense, payback, self-pity. What does Paul want my mind set on? What does Paul want your minds set on? What does Paul want the minds of Yodia and Santiki? What does he want their minds set on? He says, agree in the Lord. He does not say, you need to come to an agreement. That's what we say. That is not what Paul says. Listen, I don't know what's going on, but you need to come to an agreement. This is different. He says, agree in the Lord. I mean, go ahead. That could be a good thing. Pursue agreement over the issue that exists between you and the person you are in conflict with. But often, that's not going to happen. Try as you may to agree and come to the same perspective of what happened or what is happening. Most often, I think, that is not going to happen. That's not going to happen. You're not going to see things the same way. You're not going to persuade the other You may have to agree to disagree. So let me read a couple quotes to you. The first one is by Sinclair Ferguson. I couldn't put this into my own words or better words. I thought it was very helpful as he talks about what it means to agree in the Lord. He says, how can two people who think differently be brought to think in the same way by remembering that they are both In the Lord. They are his. Not their own. They are both his. It would be inconsistent therefore. For either of them to insist on her own way. When they both belong to a savior. Who had not insisted on his way. Nor sought to please himself. The Lord made himself nothing. Did not grasp at his rights. He took the role of a servant. In the Lord, 
they were called to follow his example in their relationships with each other. D.A. Carson says something similar. In light of the argument of Philippians as a whole, this is not a hopeless demand for perfect agreement on every subject. Good, because that's not going to happen. Paul is not saying to Eodia and Syntyche, ladies, on every single point of doctrine and life, I expect you to thrash out your differences and arrive at perfect agreement. For when the verb is used elsewhere, the appeal is broader and deeper. Recall, after all, Paul's argument at the beginning of Philippians 2, where the same verb occurs. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. In other words, Paul is appealing for a mental attitude that adopts the same basic direction as other believers the same fundamental aim, the same orientation and priorities, that is a gospel orientation. So what are these authors saying? And I think they're right. What what is Paul saying? Conflict is resolved among God's people. When those in conflict agree to prioritize the glory of God through the application of the gospel. This is how we resolve conflict. It's often not by coming to an agreement. It's often not by seeing things the same way. Conflict is resolved among God's people when those in conflict agree. Here's what we agree on. Prioritizing the glory of God. There's something more important than my hurt feelings. There's something more important than my reputation. There's something more important than me winning. There's something more important than me being right. There's something more important than you having a changed perspective. There's something more important. And it is what is always more important. And it is God's glory. This is why you and I are here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So everything, everything in our life needs to be prioritized in such a way that number one is always God's glory. I want God to be glorified. I want God to be praised. I want God to be worshipped. I want God to be seen as great. I want his name in light. It's about God. It's not about me. God's glory. Number one, and everything else may move around beneath that. So conflict is resolved when Christians agree that we're both here for the glory of God and will pursue His glory in this conflict through the application of the gospel. The gospel. I have been forgiven. So, so here I am, I'm in conflict and I've sinned or I've been sinned against. Here's the gospel coming to bear. I have been forgiven by God. I have been loved 
and accepted by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the kind of truth that changes everything. It's the kind of truth that changes conflict. It's the kind of truth that gives you different goals and and different expectations and, and different means for working through it. I have been forgiven by God. I have been loved and accepted by the creator of the universe through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that is the truth that I need to meditate on. Maybe other truths as well. But if any truth. And ultimately, this truth, the truth of the gospel, that I have been forgiven and loved and accepted by God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Two people about God's glory, thinking about this truth, are agreeing in the Lord and can resolve a conflict. Outside of that, It's up for grabs. Whether or not conflict gets resolved. So here's a few examples of how that looks practically. Okay, typically if you're in conflict with someone, you're taking some criticism. Okay, the gospel means I can take criticism. That's how I became a Christian. I was criticized. I was told... Hey, you're dead in your sin. That's that's criticism. That's very harsh criticism. You are dead in your sin. You are blind. You have a hard heart. You do not have a sweet heart. Your heart is deceitful beyond all things. It is beyond cure. You can't understand it. Jeremiah 17, 9. All the wicked, evil things that you do, that's all born in your heart. It starts in your heart, Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of men's hearts, come all of this sin. Your wellspring, your fountainhead of everything you do and say is corrupted. That's pretty severe criticism. And that's how I became a Christian. So am I going to say that, yes, I'm dead in my sin? But I was not insensitive. (laughs) So going back to the gospel reminds me. Wait a minute. I was probably insensitive. I can take that criticism. I can handle that criticism. Because you know what? My relationship with God is not on the line here. I am forgiven, loved, and accepted by God. So if I'm not being loved by you or accepted by you or you've got an issue with me, I want to work to resolve that. But I'm okay because I have been forgiven. I can forgive others. I can forgive others because I have been forgiven for everything I have done. Every sin I have committed, every wrong word, thought, deed, lust, everything, I have been totally forgiven. The sins I don't know I'm going to commit, but will someday commit, forgiven. So I can forgive others. I can forgive an offense toward me. I can stop getting angry 
when a friend does not accept me or love me or respect me because good night, I have the love and acceptance of the creator of the universe. It doesn't have the same weight, it doesn't devastate the way it did before Christ. I can cancel the pity party. You ever have a pity party? Make invitations. I'm having a party. Everyone's invited. Going to have it publicly on Facebook. Isn't it sad? Don't get me wrong, things are sad. I'm talking about the attention that we crave from others instead of going to Christ. I can cancel the pity party. Look how Christ suffered for me in the gospel. I have the pity party. I whine. I complain. Woe is me. But it's very difficult to maintain that self-pity when I turn to the gospel and think of how Christ suffered for my sake. I can stop justifying my actions in this conflict. My salvation is not riding on this. Why am I acting like it is? I've been justified through Christ. So I can take the criticism, I can look at my actions, I can admit my failure, I can confess my sin, I can certainly forgive others. You see how everything changes when we agree in the Lord. We're not going to have the same perspective. We're not at the end of our argument going to go and write down what happened and it's going to match word for word. We're not going to be able to take care of every little detail and every we can't do that. But we can be committed to glorifying God as Christians and we can be committed to taking the gospel, putting the gospel on the table, thinking about the gospel and applying that to whatever conflict we're in. And when we do, it changes everything. So we're on to verse three now. Paul has one more instruction. So he's called the entire local church to stand firm in the Lord, right? That's his first instruction. He has called those in the conflict to agree in the Lord. And now he has an instruction for those who are watching the conflict. This probably tends to be the most passive group. Haven't you watched a conflict between friends and you knew about it for a long time and you didn't say anything, you didn't help, you didn't offer to help, then something happened and you look back and you said to yourself, what, I wish I would have said something. I saw that issue, I saw that conflict and I just, I was passive. Haven't you looked back and wished that you had done something? Well, this is Paul's instruction. Listen to verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. 
And then he speaks so well of these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Help these godly Christian women who can't get along. True companion. We're not sure who the true companion is. There's been lots of speculation. It may be Epaphroditus who delivered this letter. It may have been Paul's wife, some have said, who was in the church. It may have been uh, a person by this actual Greek name. Whoever Paul has in mind, the principle is this. Those outside the conflict have a responsibility to help those in the conflict. Those outside the responsibility, uh, the conflict have a responsibility to help those in the conflict. A few years ago, several of us worked through a book together called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Many of you have read this book. And one of the things at the very beginning of that book, which will probably sound so simple to many of you, but it was, it was profound for us to really think about. One of the things the authors pointed out at the very beginning of the book is this. We all need help. We all need help. You know, the idea in the Christian church that the weak ones need help. Well, that's okay if you mean that we're all the weak ones. Because we really are. One of the first things I'll say when a, a married couple, let's say, comes in who's having marriage conflict and they've tried many things and they come in sort of feeling defeated and we've tried everything else and now here we are we're 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 it's to the point where we're actually in need of pastoral counseling and one of the ways that i'll try to disarm them the very beginning of maybe one of those meetings is to say we all need counseling we all go through things in our life and seasons of our life where things are not working and the ordinary means of grace are just not doing it. And I'm reading my Bible maybe and I'm praying and I'm reading books and I'm, I'm fellowshipping in this, but I've still got this problem. I've still got this issue. We all go through that. And we're too slow, way too slow to ask for help. And, and you know how you talk yourself out of it. I don't want to be a burden and this shouldn't even be an issue and it's no big deal and they're so busy and you know. And you don't, you don't talk to the friend. You don't talk to the pastor. You don't ask for help. Listen, we all need help. These two women were going to need help. And as is often the case with people in conflict, they probably weren't going to ask for it. They needed someone outside the conflict to help mediate. They needed someone outside the conflict to remind them of the gospel and to help them agree in the Lord. So Paul says to the women, hey, you need to agree in the Lord. And then he says to this true trusted companion, you need to help these women. Help these godly Christian women to agree in the Lord. And we need to be willing to do that as, as Christians. We need to be willing to do that as Christians, to, to go up to another Christian, say, hey, I noticed something. I, I think I'm seeing something. I heard something. And I just wanted to come to you and ask you about it. 
is this going on? Are, are you doing this? Are you guys okay? It seemed like the two of you, you, it used to be like this, and now it's like this. Maybe it's in marriage. Maybe it's friendships. And things look different now. I could be, I could be way off here, but is there something going on? And then what's the follow-up? Can I help? How can I help? Can we get together, have coffee? Just, can we read the word? Can, we, can I just pray with you? Can we talk on the phone once a week? I mean, how bad is it? Do, should you get some counseling? Do, do we need some resources? Are you, are you getting the help that you need? Are you getting the, the support that you need? Rather than, rather than, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. It's no big deal. Well, they haven't asked for help. Those outside the conflict have a responsibility to help those inside the conflict. Okay, one more thing I'd like to point out before we wrap this up. It's evident in these verses. You probably already noticed it. It's this. Love for God and one another is what motivates us to resolve conflict. At the end of the day, Love for God and love for one another. This is a great example we have here from Paul of speaking the truth in love. Ephesians talks about that. Speak the truth in love. And, and many of us are not balanced there, right? We're very, very loving and our words are very loving, but there's not a lot of truth. Or there's a lot of truth and there's no love in it. We're supposed to speak the truth in love, which is what Paul is doing here. It's a great example of Proverbs 27.5, which says this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's what Paul is doing. Isn't it clear as you read these words how much Paul loves this church? When you read these words, he loves this church. He loves these two women who are in conflict. He has a relationship with this church. He misses them. He is proud of them. They bring him joy. At the very start of his letter, in 1 verse 8, he said, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And then here... Paul gives this exhortation, but he, he packages it in all of this love and tenderness. Right? It's a strong exhortation. Hey, Iodian and Syntyche, you right there in the third row. In my letter, you need to agree in the Lord. That'd be painful. But he packages this in tenderness and love. He refers to this church, the people there, as brothers. He calls them his joy and crown. He says again that he loves and longs for them. And he calls them his beloved. Love for God. Love for one another motivates us to resolve conflict. In conclusion. Some of you are in conflict right now. Maybe some of you should be in conflict right now. And you're not. That's step one. You need to get in conflict. You're ignoring things. You're sweeping things under the carpet. There are issues. But a lot of you, I bet, are in conflict this morning with other Christians. You're in conflict with family members. You're in conflict with friends. As you, you need to, Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, 
live at peace with everyone. As far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Now we didn't talk about conflict between believers and unbelievers. This is a very specific thing in Paul's words here. This isn't about conflict between believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers cannot agree in the Lord. That's not the subject of Paul's exhortation. Resolving conflict between believers and unbelievers is something very different, very difficult, and with very different expectations. But when you are in conflict with another Christian, resolution is far easier than when you are in conflict with an unbeliever. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. There is no good reason that Christians remain in conflict. No good reason that Christians remain in conflict because Christians alone can agree in the Lord. So, may we together as a church stand firm in the Lord. Not only that, when conflict arises, may we work to agree in the Lord. And finally, for those of us who find ourselves on the outside of a conflict, looking in, may we be ready and willing to help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these words that we have from Paul that You spoke through him to that church in Philippi, and now you speak to us. God, we are reminded in passages like this how all of your word is from you and is helpful. We're reminded of this, God, as we think about the conflict that we've been in this week, the conflict that we're in right now, the the conflicts that are in store for us, and we're thankful that you give us help. So help us, God, to prioritize your glory. That that would be the most important motive in our hearts. More important than justifying ourselves. More important than being right. More important than winning. God, may we be about your glory and not our own. And then help us, God, to... Remember the gospel. To think about the gospel, to meditate on the gospel, to rehearse the gospel in our mind and heart so that we would be ready and equipped to agree with other believers that we're in conflict with. God, continue to unite us as a church. We're thankful for all that you have spared us from. We're thankful for the unity that does exist in this church. We're thankful for how unique and special this church family is. And we know that it is only by your grace. So we give you the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.